Episode 263 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. With high-resolution coast-to-coast composite radar and cloud-to-cloud, cloud-to-ground lightning updated every 2.5 minutes along with always available weather products like METARs, ECHOTOPS, and storm tracks. Sirius XM lets you fly confidently knowing that your weather information is available at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Check out aopa.org forward slash Sirius XM to get a two-month free trial to try these products out for yourself. Uh, Jim Higgins, Professor of Aviation at the University of North Dakota. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's episode is a state of the industry episode with Dr. Jim Higgins from the University of North Dakota. And we talk about a lot of great stuff. Delta, we talk about we talk about the Delta contract, Spirit, JetBlue, will the merger go through? Yes, I meant for that to rhyme. <laughs> we talk about what's going on in the aviation issue, why there have been so many close calls, and much more. Aviation, if you enjoy these type of episodes, please let me know. You can email me at pilottopilothq at gmail.com. Also, if you want to get a topic for this, go ahead and email me as well at pilottopilothq at gmail.com or justin at pilotscoffee, and I'll pass it over to Jim, and we'll talk about it on the next State of the Industry podcast. Today, I am currently, well, it's 5 a.m. in the morning. I'm recording this in the parking lot of Raleigh-Durham Airport. Probably looking like a freak, but you know, you got to do what you got to do on a Tuesday morning to get the podcast out. But uh, we're recording this, and we are going to work uh, grabbing First Form Bars. If you like First Form, if you want to try the First Form Bars, I promise you, you need to try them. They are amazing. Click the link below, and uh, go ahead and get the chocolate ones. Those are my favorite. Try those first, and then go from there. But Aviation, I hope you're having a great day. And as always, happy flying. Jim, what's going on? Welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Well, I should say welcome to our State of the Industry podcast. <laughs> Perfect. No, it's good to be here and uh, always great talking with you about this. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, one of the most requested things that I keep doing, so we're going to do it as long as I can get you here. Absolutely. Looking forward to it every time. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, there's a lot going on. We were just talking about five minutes about everything that we talk about, uh, and there is a ton to talk about, but probably the biggest news and probably the happiest story and the the best one we'll talk about today is um, the most heartwarming I should say is the Delta TA it is finally passed I don't remember the percentages I think it was some like 76 percent maybe 78 percent yeah 78 percent which I know I only know my experience with my company that I fly for and every single one that we've passed since I've been here uh, the company I'm at we don't really necessarily go through section six anymore they figured that it saves, this is kind of digressing, but it's kind of interesting to also talk about. We try to avoid section six and we try to do IBIs and IBBs. I don't know which one kind of is the one you want to choose, but it seems like every time we talk about it, it's either IBI or IBB. 
but every two to three years we get together and we talk about what we can improve. And that's the only things we're allowed to kind of negotiate and each side can walk away. So they try to avoid section six as much as possible just because it gets ugly. Like we've seen, and like we're going to talk about how long this process has started and how long they've had a fight for. I believe at one point it came to the union where they actually went to the pilots and they agreed on a strike vote, which obviously doesn't mean that you can strike right away, but it was started the process of the strike. So it's been long, hard fought Delta, earned it. Delta pilots earned it and uh, hopefully they can put it behind them and they can enjoy the fruits of their labor and their hard work. Well, you summed it up quite nicely. It has been a very long road. It's been a long road for a lot of the legacy carriers to get contracts put in place for their pilots. And Delta was certainly no exception. There were some failed, it was a failed TA. There was a lot of uh, churn within their labor union and, uh, you know, a renegotiation uh, commenced. And you're exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things I think that from a pilot point of view, you can celebrate. Seventy-eight uh, percent is a that's a very good vote. Uh, you know, sometimes you see them in the '90s, sometimes you see them, you know, in the '50s. And so this what I would call is a, is a moderately good result for for the pilots. However, you know, there's going to be over twenty percent of the pilots that uh, you know feel they may maybe could have gotten something better. So that'll be something that will play out over the next several years. By the way, just uh, pilot humor on that. You know, the uh, the 22 percent that uh, voted against it in about two years, there's going to be about 90 percent that voted against it. Or at least that's what they'll <laughs> tell you when you see them on the flight. Deck. Isn't that the <laughs> truth? Not even the flight deck, but their message boards. Every airline has their own private message boards. And, you know, as soon as something comes up, like I told you and then yep. 100 people will be like, I told you, too. It's like, well, there's yep, no way yep. you guys are all the 28 or 22 percent that didn't agree to this. Like there's something going on. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. My, my father retired at UPS and. There was a contract that went through. He's, he told me he was just he's an old timer, old continental striker. He said he never voted yes on a contract. <laughs> so I mean, there's that. But but he 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 would wear a little pin that said I was in the eight percent. You know that vote. He was proud to be the eight percent that voted against it. No, I, I I think it's an interesting thing. You know, when you look at the terms of the Delta TA, uh, certainly there you know there's a thirty four percent pay raise uh, over the the next several years. There was some retro, I understand, and there's a lot of lot of philosophical talk we could have about retro uh, bonuses, or I'm sorry, retro pay. Um, you know, and um, apparently there were some uh, quality of life increases, but I also understand that some of the folks um, there was a big debate internally amongst the pilots over quality of life improvements. You know, scheduling, vacations, sick calls, uh, even retirement. You know, versus uh, just straight going for the money. Um, I will tell you as a former union negotiator. Generally speaking, the playbook for for pilots is is you take a look at what's going on in the economy, and when it's a good time, that's generally when you try to go for money and short term things that cost money. And when times aren't so good economically for the carrier that you're negotiating with, that's when you try to go for some quality of life or some long term things, things like um, you know scope and furlough mitigation and and you know things of that nature. So that's the general way it works, but um, doesn't always come to fruition. So when you say that, do you mean, say, if there's a really bad recession, the company comes back for concessions? They're like, all right, well, we'll give up some money, but this has to change. Yeah. So during concessionary times, when the recession is a a perfect thing, uh, the unions pretty much know the game that's played with the National Mediation Board, the NMB, you know, to go through and ultimately self-help, which is a strike. You have to go through a process where Ultimately, you have to be released uh, by the NMB to start the clock ticking for a strike. And when times are really tough out there, the NMB is unlikely to ever release a labor union or it would take a lot 
of bad faith on the company side to, to release it. So, so everyone knows that. So it's, it's really tough. So instead of trying to go for something that's probably not releasable to, to eventually get to a strike, you go for things that um, don't cost as much money in the short term. Because during a recession, the, the company is going to be strapped for cash, right? That's that's generally what happens. And so that's when you go for things like scope uh, protection if you're a union, you know, pilots union. Or that's where you'll go for things like um, furlough protection or mitigation or, or things like that. And those are just those are just the prototypical things you would look at. Yeah, got it. That makes a lot of sense, actually. But uh, this will actually, this kind of talk will come up a little bit later when we, when we get into some more subjects about quality of life and uh, how important it can be in rest and fatigue and all that. But it is interesting how, you know, so there can be so many people that get held up over quality of life because as pilots historically we're all about the money right second quality of life is usually a secondary thought so it almost gets to the point where pilots are finally thinking that maybe we're getting paid enough or what we deserve you know for ever since what 9-11 we've been chasing what those pay rates have been uh right before 9-11 or even before deregulation uh back when you know and being an airline pilot was the coolest thing in the world you're on commercials you were a rock star um, so we've been chasing those periods for the longest time. And now that maybe we're getting back into that range or getting back up there, they're starting to be like, well, it's not just quality of life. You know, like we, <laughs> I want some rest, man. <laughs> I want to go to sleep. Right. Right. Well, it's also generational. I believe there's been, a, there's been some research done on that, that, um, newer pilots, younger pilots that are entering the industry. Uh, it's not necessarily as much, I mean, obviously everyone wants to be well-paid. There's no doubt about that, but uh, the quality of life, the work-life balance that we hear a lot about in corporate America, uh, which can be tough for a pilot, as we all know, just being away from home. So uh, when things uh, lessen that and increase someone's work-life balance in the positive, that's going to be pretty helpful. I think that's where you're going to see a lot of that value. Um, you know, I know in my, in my family, I have an airline family. My wife flies for one of the legacies. And, um, you know, we, we constantly are looking for that. We're not as in, it's just our circumstance. We're not quite as personally as interested in uh, maximizing the pay. Uh, we're a little more interested in quality time at home and, and things like that. So like, like for instance, um, bidding, you know, that's a big thing. That's probably one of the biggest events that happens for our family. You know, when you bid, you know, the, the carrier she's at uses a preferential bidding system a PBS. And so, so that's really important. It's, you know, when the results come out, it impacts your life greatly. Are you going to have your kids event off? Are you going to be able to go see your uh, parents on this weekend when they're having a little get together? I mean, et cetera, et cetera. And so to us and to a lot of pilots, uh, not that I'm identifying myself as a young pilot by any stretch or a young family of pilots, but, but that being said, um, it is very important. And so it's just a big trade-off, you know? And uh, of course, you can't usually get every single thing on your want list. And so then you have to decide what's important. And of course, that's driven by the surveys that the unions will do. And they'll actually do, in some cases, focus groups. And uh, rep local representatives will call out to their different groups and hold meetings. What would you like to see? What's more important if you had to choose, et cetera? And so those are um, important. That's an important dilemma that will be here 100 years from now and was here at the beginning of a professional uh, piloting as well. What's more important, the pay or the quality of life? Yeah. And one thing that's really interesting to me about this whole process, and I just, I do not understand it. Like coming from, I'm obviously a pilot. I, I belong to a union, so I can't speak for the company or a company. I don't want people to think I'm talking about my company, just a company. <laughs> I don't right. understand the, the process of it. I don't understand the fighting. I don't understand the bickering. Like, you know, you're going to have to pay 
in this current climate, when pilot shortage is actually here, the one that they've been telling you about for the last 30 years, it's actually here. We're struggling to get pilots. Why, why put up this big fight? Like I, I, the one thing I'm thinking of specifically is the Alaska Airlines CFO, CEO. I don't think it was CEOs. It was someone at the top of Alaska mocking the pilots during the picket. It's like, what are we doing? Like, what's the point of this? You know, you're going to have to pay them. You know, you're going to have to make their quality of life better. You're going to have to do this to ensure that your company operates, gets pilots and flies the metal. So it's like, why are we, why are we playing these games? How come we can't just bring you a great contract? You sign it and we're all happy and we can boast about how we're not playing those games and we can attract more pilots to come here. Well, it's a very interesting point. I do recall the CFO at Alaska when she went down the line, the picket line and went, you know, literally face to face with every pilot and I, you know, had a stare down. Of course, the Alaska management has come out and said she was just there to to recognize and say hello. I saw the video. I thought it's it was if I would have been one of those pilots, I would have probably had the interpretation that there was an intimidation thing going on. I guess that's neither here nor there. They finally got their their contract and they're, they're happy, I guess. But I, I do remember that. And to your greater question is why does it have to be so acrimonious? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I when, when I was the MEC chair at American Eagle, which we now know as Envoy, we had 2,900 pilots. And, you know, I would go into work in the morning every day. And um, I could have probably had 30 spats with the company over various issues that had come up, either minor issues or major issues that day. You could fight on everything if you wanted to. And um, I don't know why it came became so acrimonious. That's, that's really a good question. Just, I think structurally, management, and it's tough for me to put on, put on a management hat, but you know, management, they have, they have a responsibility at the end of the day to their shareholders. Uh, yes, they have a responsibility to their employees as well, no doubt. But from a legal point of view, if you were to look at, you know, court cases and statutes and whatnot, the truth is a company has a fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders and the shareholders often are not the employees. And so there is a tension that exists there where, you know, you can't, from a management point of view, you can't just open the faucet and, you know, make it a a grocery list of what everyone wants. You have to try to pay a fair wage, a good wage, a leading wage, uh, but nonetheless, you know, still an adequate wage that maintains your, your profit margins. But it's like, it's like I said, it's tough for me to, to get on that side of it, but I think that is structurally what happens. There's a lot of pressure. And then more on a micro level, people that are known to kind of be tough on labor in this industry, and this goes back to the eighties. I'm not talking about like the Frank Lorenzo's and the, the, you know, the, the villains that we all know are, at least in my opinion, a villain. Uh, but I am talking about people maybe like Crandall at American or some of these others that are just kind of larger than life um, figures. A lot of them were known to be tough on labor. They cut their teeth on being tough on labor and it propelled them individually to big positions within the industry. So there's no CEO or, or, or senior management person that ever wants to be labeled uh, weak with their labor groups. So there's a little bit of that, I think, on a micro example. The one exception to all of this, of course, was Herb Kelleher at Southwest, who just had an unbelievably amazing relationship with their pilots and had a very motivated pilot group and all labor groups there. And he was one of the ones that was able to solve that puzzle. Uh, Of course, we don't see that anymore at Southwest like we used to. 
But um, back to your question, there have been people that have figured it out. But for the most part, I think those are the two main reasons, the structural. And then also there's individual uh, people that are trying to climb the corporate ladder on the management side, you know, and, and from the union side, too, you do not want to be seen as a weak negotiator either. Right. I was a I was a negotiator for a long time. And it is a it is not a fun job because especially when the leverage is against you and you really have nothing you can do, it's really hard to get somebody else to change their position. Um, you know, you talked about the IBB and the IBI. Well, we can talk about those processes later. Um, but I have yet to find a technique or a process in negotiating that at the end of the day, whoever has the most leverage is going to be the one that emerges with most of their wants on a list. And I haven't found any anything that um, that changes that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're right in everything you've said. I guess my, my, my way of my thinking is like, all right, if I'm even the union or if I'm the company, I go to, to the other party and I'm like, hey, look. It's gonna be a rough couple of years, right? Like this is gonna be tough. Like uh, we're gonna sh- we're n- we're not Delta, we're not American, we're not United. We're a tier two airline. I-, I hate to say that, but I mean, and when when pilots think of it, they think of the majors, they think of the big three plus one, like Southwest. Uh, but like, just come up to them and be like, all right, we really let's. What if we try to go to the Southwest way? What if we try to build that community that they had w- with Herb, and-, and we try to do that, and we just have this great press. We love our pilots. We want to pay you the most, and we're actually gonna do it. I feel like that would do wonders to attract pilots. I think so. There's lots of examples of that. The the other individual that comes to mind is a gentleman by the name of Gordon Bethune, who took over at Continental Airlines um, in the early 90s. He was a Boeing executive that came over as, as the CEO there. And they wrote a book. There's a famous book out there from worst to first. And it talked about how, you know, Continental was consistently at the time. They're now, of course, they merged with United. But at the time, Continental was consistently being rated as the worst place to work. They were known to have the worst relations. And he put together, it was a slow incremental process, and he didn't pay his people the most either. But he put together a process that uh, absolutely turned that relationship around. And um, so there are examples out there like that. There are things that can be done. One of the biggest things is tone. Uh, You know, I remember uh, during a, a pretty bad contract talk, uh, when I was uh, the MEC chairman, uh, I went to the company. This was before 9-11, a couple months before 9-11. And I went to the company and asked if um, we could reopen our Section 6 a little early, our negotiations a little early because the company was doing really well. We were falling way behind our peers. And the company said no. And um, I, I wrote a, uh, uh, an email back saying, OK, well, obviously, we can't force you to open Section 6 early. But just remember, there will be a time where you need us to do something for you. And remember this time where you told us no when we needed something from you. And then, um, you know, the horrific events of 9-11 occurred, which, of course, we all know were, were horrific. But my email back to them became very timely because, to their credit, they never asked us for concessions after that because we made it very clear when things were good, we asked for some help. Now things are bad. Go somewhere else. And so um, the tone but, – but, but in the rejection I got from the company – um, I compared it to a rejection that Gordon Bethune gave to his pilots when they asked for an increase in pay. And the rejection on our side, the tone was, nope, not going to do it. This is a non-starter. You know, basically get lost. The rejection from Gordon Bethune was, you all deserve this race. You all have worked very, very hard. You all have done everything we've asked you to do. And if I could personally give you the money, I would. The truth is, and I'll share my books with you, the truth is, 
We just cannot give you what you deserve right now. And I know that's a tough pill to swallow, but that's the truth of it. And therein lies the issue. Continental, I'm sure they still had their issues, but they had no issues compared to what all the other carriers had, you know, under his leadership. And there were probably other good people there too. So a long way to say, I think, believe it or not, tone and tenor go a very long way with managing your labor relations. You would think it's all X's and O's, all quantitative data. And, you know, this guy gets that, this person gets this. No, a lot of it comes down to people and, and, you know, um, respect. Yeah. I was going to say, it's all about respect. It's all about wanting to be heard and wanting to be understood and and treated like an equal, like they they don't want to be looked down on or thought of as like a property. Like you're our pilots. We do whatever we want with you, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, those are all good points. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. At the end of the day, that that's what it is. And and the, the other thing with this Delta TA that we probably should uh, delve into just a little bit is this concept of pattern bargaining. You know, this is a concept that the labor unions have used for many, many years. And the idea is when one group that flies similar equipment uh, achieves a certain pay rate or a certain work rule or whatever, whatever it is you're comparing, um, then the next group that it negotiates for the same piece of equipment is going to try and get a little bit more. My, my specific example uh, that I was involved with is when the Embraer uh, 140s, if you remember, there was a Embraer 140 jet that was a scope buster. It was a um, 44 seat jet at American that um, showed up in the, in the early 2000s and we had to negotiate pay rates for it. Well, Comair at the time, uh, great airline, uh, Comair had just negotiated some, some pretty good rates on their, on their 44 seaters, they also had a scope buster for a while. CRJ four, uh, 440, I think. Well, I can't remember, but it was something like that. And um, so we went in, and our what we were going for was Comair plus one percent under the auspices of pattern bargaining. That really puts the um, company in a pickle, right? Because they either have to admit they can't pay you, in which case they have to open up their books and prove it generally, or they have to say they just don't want to pay you. Or I guess the other thing they can say is, is we're not as good as the other management team, so we can't earn enough profitability uh, to pay you what you're asking for. So pattern bargaining is a very strong, it's just a slow process, but it's a very strong tool that's been used for years. And make no mistake, the pilots at United Airlines are very sharply interested in Delta's TA because they both have snap-up provisions. They're both going to have snap-up provisions. So as soon as uh, United gets their new contract, that uh, presumably will be, you know, higher pay rates than than Delta's. Then Delta gets a one-time snap up that that puts them in front of United, and then of course United is going to get a one-time snap up. So it's going to be almost like an automatic pattern bargaining that that comes in. But but it also lifts a lot of the other um, carriers as well. But it's an important process. You know, it's funny about that is you didn't mention American at all. You just said Delta and United. <laughs> so Americans, a, it's a uh, you know, I Americans such a proud airline. I have a lot of friends that that work there. Um, they are an enigma on many fronts and it's not a negative thing, but they're an enigma on many fronts. I mean, for instance, their entire approach to the, uh, pilot shortage with, especially with the regional partners, radically different than everybody else's. Uh, and, and it's probably worked for them in most cases, but radically different, but same with their labor unions. They've just, everything's just been a little different, you know? And, uh, I saw that of course they're canceling 50,000 flights this summer because they just don't have the the people to, to operate them, which is, you know, that's a lot of lost revenue. And of course, United and, and Delta are, are licking their chops at that. Um, but um, I can't figure them out. I can't figure out their, uh, you know, I've had friends on the negotiating committee there 
Um, I've talked to the negotiating committee there uh, from various times in the past. And, and I can just tell you that um, it's just a different process. They, they just as likely, to, I'm telling you, Justin, they just as likely in three months can come out with like a new side letter that gives them all $500 an hour fine, or they could come out with a letter that says everyone's getting furloughed tomorrow. I, I mean, obviously I'm being draconian and neither of those things are going to happen. But my point is, is that you just can't predict what's going to happen there. Um, I see their CEO is, is moving on, is announced he's moving on. So we'll see who picks up that spot and see what happens there. But Americans always been an enigma for me. Yeah, I think ever since the whole, I mean, I guess I don't know historically because my dad, my American knowledge starts when my dad started flying for American. He came from Piedmont, kind of rode Piedmont, the OG Piedmont, not the regional Piedmont. Right. Uh, he rode right. that all the way up to American. And um, kind of my knowledge of American history, American, American Airlines history <laughs> is uh, not as in-depth as uh, some others. But ever since I feel like Doug Parker said that we're too big to fail, I feel like things have just gotten wonky there. You know, it's been really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Like everything just hasn't gone perfectly for them. And I feel like he's really trying to test that statement that he made by saying that they're too big to fail. Or maybe that's maybe that's what he said. Maybe he said that there will never be a day where they don't make a profit. I think that's more in line with what he said, uh, which essentially is the same thing, I feel like. But it's just a little strange. I don't know. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Uh, but they are. They just seem to be a little bit different. And like you said, their approach seems to be we're going to get all the young pilots. We're going to pay them so much money that they're going to love what we do here. And they're going to remember how much we paid them and they're going to stay with us forever. And if we lose 10% of them to the other airlines, then so be it. We still have all these other pilots in here and eventually we'll take care of those pilots because that's all we care about. It's almost like they're saying like they're our future. We're going to invest in them, not in the people that helped us build the airline to where they are today. No doubt they've brought their checkbooks out and there's no doubt they're writing big checks it goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier. I have a little bit of an illustrative example here that might be interesting here. You know, at the University of North Dakota, we, like many universities and training places, we get um, recruiters in, right, from the regionals. And the recruiters will come in. And I've noticed over the years, uh, several of the uh, recruiting groups have very different philosophies in how they recruit. So um, I'm going to give you a little pop quiz here. I think you're probably going to know which way this is going to go. Airline A uh, had just, it's, an, it's a regional, but it had just signed a leading a leading regional contract with great pay, great work rules, you know, and everyone was pretty happy. Contract passed 90% plus and everyone was happy. Airline B was large and certainly growing, but didn't offer anywhere near the pay. You know, Airline A came in and marketed themselves with, you know, this is our new contract. This is, you know, how you can get to a major, et cetera, et cetera. Airline B came in and uh, through barbecues, had volleyball games, sponsored intramural events, sponsored, um, would go into the residence halls here and sponsor pizza nights. And guess which one was by far, by far much more successful? This is your pop quiz. Airline one, the traditional, or airline two, the one that did the pizza parties? I'm going pizza parties, man. College it wasn't even close. <laughs> they were by far, they knew what they were doing. And so, again, I, you know, your point about American writing these huge checks investing in these young pilots, especially coming up through their commuters, because the, the bonuses they're paying, if you agree to flow, are amazing, right? That We haven't seen money like that in the past. So huge investments, but the jury is out on whether or not that's going to carry the day, because I would see, I would see people go to a regional that you think to yourself, okay, it's a decent regional, but, but it's not even close to what you have 
at this other regional, but because their instructor went there and that person's happy, <laughs> they have some pizza parties and some intramural volleyball. And, you know, I mean, I'm, not, I'm being, it sounds like I'm being flippant, but I think you get what I'm saying. It, it's enough for them to, to win. They've figured out how to compete. Well, it's also interesting because I feel like they're going off the psychology of how pilots are very loyal to the airlines, where yeah. in the old days, it used to be in the old days, not even that long ago, like 10 years ago, whoever <laughs> hired you, that's where you're going. That's where you're staying. You're building that seniority, but it's not uncommon anymore for, for someone to get hired at Southwest and then to go to United someone at United to go to Delta. And I know of a few people that are actually gone from Delta to United. Uh, it's not uncommon for pilots to switch around and move around to find the best job for their family and not just stick it out at the first major airline they get hired by. So that's also a dangerous game to play. If they can't continue to improve the actual, the big leagues, you know, the major airline pay, they're going to bounce. They'll take that that initial money and they'll say, thank you very much. This bought me right. a nice car, a house. I can start my family, but I'm going to Delta now. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's not like anything we've seen in the past. Uh, and, and I do know that even at the legacy carriers, they are. It's not a big number, but they do end up with no shows in their uh, new hire classes. I mean, we're talking, you know, a couple every class, but still, based on what you're saying, we talk about the good old days. You're right. This industry was radically different ten years ago. You would have never seen an empty seat, uh, you know, for for one of these legacy carriers. And there's another thing we can talk about at some point. It doesn't have to be this time, but you know, even amongst the legacy carriers, the one group we're leaving out are uh, the FedEx UPS. I mean, I don't know if you've seen those contracts. Even the labor unions at uh, Delta United and American have given up on any kind of pattern bargaining off of them because their pay rates at those places have just gone astronomical. So, you know, we are seeing lots of different things that we never used to see. Uh, you know, um, the United's not the United pilots, for instance, aren't saying, "Hey, we want FedEx rates." They've given up on that and they're saying, hey, we want these new Delta rates. So so all kinds of new, interesting developments that um, if you would have told me 10 years ago, these are some of the things we're going to see. I would say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't see that happening, but uh, it'll be interesting. I'm sure the next 10 years will have just as many surprises. Yeah. And, and also kind of you brought up FedEx uh, and, and astronomical pay rates in the freight world. But if you think about it and you look into it, FedEx right now I don't know if that's something you want to be comparing yourself to based on kind of the issues that they're going well, with. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they're the pilots have author, authorized, which once again means that they can't strike, but they have kind of come up with the idea like, hey, we're going to go through this process and we are going to strike because you guys will not give us a new contract. Uh, and you read FedEx parking planes, they're complaining that their business isn't going very well after, after COVID. Uh, so it's a very interesting time over there. And obviously from the general public, you don't know who to believe. Like the pilot in me wants to be like, you are screwed and that company's going to pay a ton of money. But then you're also like, well, I mean, maybe people aren't shipping as much. Uh, they are parking planes. Uh, is it really for operational need or is it for posturing or is it because they don't have enough pilots? Well, well, it is true. I mean, uh, FedEx has stopped or halted its hiring for at least the the current time frame, which which is was unexpected, and part of that was this little drawback. But it's kind of an interesting concept because uh, during COVID, of course, we saw an unbelievable proliferation. It was a huge growth time at FedEx, and uh, they did really really well. And so now, as that subsides a little bit, uh, they're not you're not seeing as much of that. And so yes, it has dipped. But it's still well above pre-pandemic levels in terms of uh, tonnage that's that's shipped. So I, I don't know. Like you said, the uh, devil's in the details. And, you know, I'm sure there definitely are some local disturbances. 
Uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, uh, the contract there, and this is just, it's easy. It's all relative, right? If you're, if you're at um, a really, really small uh, night cargo operation, like I was way back in the day, you would give anything for an Envoy contract. And if you're at Envoy, you'd give anything for, you know, uh, a Delta contract. <laughs> I hate to say it, but if you're at Delta, you know, you might give a lot more to get a FedEx contract. But if you're at FedEx, there's really not a whole lot. Maybe you can look at what UPS and do some pattern off of that. But you know, that that's the top of the, the iceberg. Of course, there's some downsides to that, too, we could talk about. I mean, it's not all um, roses. A lot of people can't, you know, for those that have to fly in the middle of the night, a lot of people can't do, a lot of people, I know, I know my wife can't stand red eyes, so she'll do everything she can to avoid them. I think maybe it comes as you get a little older, but but so there's some downside as well. But uh, to, yes, a- absolutely. It's it's all relative, but um, it's also very real. Yeah. And I mean, the the whole grass isn't always greener, right? Like if you're just truly trying to chase money, eventually you're not going to be happy somewhere. And eventually someone else is going to pay some is going to pay more than what you're getting. So you can't always just go from Delta to American to United to Southwest to FedEx to UPS. You can't always do that. Eventually you're going to have to find a home. You're going to have to make a home and you're going to have to try to choose the best airline for you. And you got to look more past the pay. Uh, and more at the quality of life or how they treat their pilots. It comes down to as little as that. Are they honest with you? Are they treating you like humans? Are they respecting you? So you also have to look at all that kind of stuff. Very much so. And even to that point, you know, that's one of the more common questions I get. I'm sure it's one of the more common questions you get is, you know, for young people entering the industry that have some decisions to make, where should I go work? What airline should I go for? That is such a deeply personal and very individual decision because it's like, it just depends. Do you want to commute for instance? Well, if you, if you want to live in your hometown and your nearest base is, is, you know, uh, a three hour flight, then you probably want to go fly for somebody that has a really good commuter provision. That's got to be one of your must haves, right? Uh, on the other side of it, if you live outside of Chicago and it's a 20 minute drive to the airport, you know, you have all kinds of options that might open up for you and you can you do things there. So, so our New York would be another good one if you, if you happen to live there. So, so it's such, you're exactly right. And your, your idea about always chasing, always going after what you think might be another bright, shiny object. It's things change so much that you have to find a good fit for yourself. And it could be anything. I, I know I have some very good friends at a regional airline. Uh, I have a real, I have a friend at one um, at Envoy who's a self-made person. He's made a lot of money on the side with these young people now call side hustles. Right. But, <laughs> but he's made a lot of money on the side and he flies because he's one of the most senior people there and, you know, loves to fly every now and then and, you know, go around the country and his RJ and he's perfectly content. So it's just such an individual thing that um, everyone has to decide what works best for them, their family, you know, pay and long-term. And, you know, at the end of the day, everyone has basically the same goals. They just have different paths to get there. Absolutely. And the last thing we'll talk about kind of the, the airline contracts is something that American, uh, the union did that I've, I don't think I've ever seen. And I, I'm only 33, so I haven't seen it all. But they came out and they flat out told all their pilots, if you want to get paid, you you need to apply to Delta right now. Go to apply to Delta. That's the only way you're going to get paid. They flat <laughs> out said that, which is insane to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's a tactic, right? That yeah, obviously. A yeah. That's a that's a tactic that, um, you know, we used to say similar things. Don't come work for us right now. Things are really bad. Um, and there might be some truth to that. You know, I, you know, they, they're the one the, the pilots are in the best position to kind of judge how things are going for them. Uh, but that is a real, that's an antagonistic tactic. You know, that I, I wonder what it's like at that negotiating table, something that you and I are just not going to see. But I can tell you 
just from my own personal experience, things like that really uh, don't play well. Uh, I remember once I, I cut a hotline um, uh, that was really, really critical of management, uh, this particular hotline. In fact, I had to get it reviewed by our lawyers at Alpa because you never, you know, you just never know what's going to trigger someone's temper and cause problems. But, but um, we got it reviewed, posted it. And then, you know, the next time I had a face to face with a company, it was cold as ice. And it, it was one of those things where, okay, you know, I, I poked them a little bit for something they were doing that we didn't like, but you know, it was a, the, in the best interest of the pilots. Cause it kind of froze things for, for a month or two there. I, I, I don't know, but, but so these tactics, when, when the airlines use these or when the unions use these kind of tactics, it's, um, it's definitely, uh, something that they've measured It's something that they calculated, but it's also for them designed to get a little bit of leverage at the table, but there could also be some unknown side effects of it that I think they have to be ready for as well. And that just comes from my personal experience. Yeah. I feel like you only use that tactic when it's kind of uh, your last hope, you know, it's uh, we got to wake them up somehow uh, and things aren't progressing anyway. So what's the point of pissing them off anymore and stalling things? Cause at this point we don't foresee this happening anyway. So let's go full military and get this done. Right. Well, it's a particularly interesting one to use against American, right? Because we, you and I were just talking about how much money they're putting in their recruiting efforts especially for all these, and, and they know it's a pain point for the air carrier when they put this money in at Endeavor or Piedmont, I'm sorry, at Envoy or Piedmont, or um, I always forget the third one, uh, PSA, it's a PSA. Anyway, they always uh, they always do that. And then all of a sudden, if one of those pilots decides to go to United or decides to go to Delta, that's a pain point. That's a, that's a lost cost, a sunk cost that you're not going to get back. Uh, if you're American putting all that money into your, the regional pay. So, so the union knows that, and they know that it, not only is it a talking point, but it actually can put some economic pressure against the company um, legally. And so it's uh, it's an interesting tactic, but like I said, it's, it, those aren't, those are long lasting tactics that can lead to some resentment that could, you know, it's just, it's all a calculation and uh, it's maybe the right thing. Only those pilots can decide if it's the right thing for them. They feel it is, and we'll see how it plays out. Let's take a break from today's podcast to hear from our sponsors, RAA. Did you know there are three action steps you can take to protect yourself in a volatile market? Volatility in the market can make the best investor a little nervous and take actions that they know they normally wouldn't. It can be stressful and you may be thinking, shouldn't I be doing something though? Well, the answer is yes. The first and maybe the most important action you can take is to resist the urge to make decisions based on recent market movements alone. This is tough, but will pay off in the long run. Next, if you're feeling stressed in this market, it may be time to review your risk tolerance and your ability to take a loss in downturns. We all like to think we can take the risk up until the point where we actually see fluctuations in our portfolio. And lastly, get a second opinion on where you stand financially so you can take a longer-term view of the market in your financial plan. Not sure where to start? RAA can help. Founded by Pilots for Pilots and with four decades of financial planning and investment management experience, RAA is intimately familiar with unique benefits, risks, and career timelines that pilots face. Whether you're early in your career as a pilot or you spent years flying the line, RAA is here to help navigate your financial journey from takeoff to touchdown. For more pilot-specific planning tips, go to raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's pilot, T-O, pilot. And now back to today's episode. Yeah, and moving on from airlines and TAs, uh, well, I guess it's still in the airline world, but Spirit Jet Blue merger. Uh, have you heard anything new on that and what's going on or what's the latest? You know, um, it's following a very prototypical path that we've seen in the, in the past. Whenever there's an airline merger, one of the things, you know, even though we say we're deregulated, we're really not deregulated in the United States. We, we have what was called regulatory reform 
1976 under Carter. A lot of people call it airline deregulation. That's what the name of the act was. But the truth is the industry was not completely deregulated. And this is a case in point where the government will, through the DOJ and a little bit through the DOT, but mostly through the DOJ, they'll come out and they will assess what the impact of a particular merger will be or how it'll impact consumers. So for instance, in, in particular, um, they'll look at basically two big items. Are small communities or you know disadvantaged communities of some sort, are they gonna be negatively affected? That's one of the questions they'll look at. And then another question they'll look at is what's gonna happen to the airfares in certain markets? So for instance, in markets where Spirit and JetBlue competed, you know, whatever that market might've been, maybe it's, um, I don't know, New York to Florida uh, seems to be, I, I, I'm not 100% familiar with Spirit's, Spirit's uh, route maps, but my, my guess would be they would have some, some New York to Florida routes. So the DOJ is gonna come in and they're going to look at those routes. They're gonna look at the average airfare that people pay. That's all available online through it. There's a 10% airfare uh, survey that the airlines have to fill out that you can get. So you can do your own studies on this if you wanted to, but they'll look at that and they'll say, you know, competition's going to decrease here. There, there's four carriers that do this. And when this merger is complete, there's going to basically be three. And okay, maybe there's still enough competition to keep that price low. Maybe there's not. But if this happens in the aggregate over many different similar routes, and the DOJ makes a determination that this is going to disadvantage the consumers, then they're going to put up a lot of roadblocks and could even say, we're never going to let this happen. Um, you know, and that's kind of what you're seeing. You're seeing some groups come out on the consumer side saying this is not good. You're seeing some industry groups coming out saying, you know, let this be more of a laissez-faire, you know, capitalism at its finest, let, let the market decide. Um, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, at the end of the day, it's really going to really come down to the administration. And by the administration, I mean the president. Pres the presidents are the ones that will decide typically because through their executive orders and through their administrative departments, in this case, the DOJ, they will generally kind of uh, decide uh, what's going to happen in individual cases. My gut feeling on this, um, and I've been famously wrong, I was – I was wrong about the U.S. Air uh, United merger years ago. <laughs> you know, if you yeah. remember that one, that was maybe even prior to 9-11. Oh, yeah, they, I remember they that. Got pretty, yeah. Um, I thought that was going to go through eventually. But but my guess is, is uh, this one will probably ultimately go through. There may be some things that JetBlue has to give up. Sometimes the DOJ will say, well, you can do this, but you can only compete this many times on this route. Or, you know, you can't, you have to agree to not charge above this for a certain amount of time, or you have to pull out of this market altogether and let your competitors take it or, or whatever the case may be, they can come up with some kind of accommodation. I think that even though JetBlue and Spirit are both very large, they certainly do not represent the largest parts of the passenger industry. So even when they combine, yes, they'll still be large, but they're still not going to um, uh, approach the, the upper legacy. So my gut feeling is eventually uh, the, uh, the the DOJ and the DOT and the government in general will let this merger probably go forward. It's just going to be a lot of roadblocks between now and then. Do you think that the Frontier Spirit merger would have gone through pretty easily without any kind of DOJ uh, backlash? Uh, philosophically, the answer probably would have been yes. I mean, uh, one of the things that's looked at is, you know, route overlap, because it goes back to what I was just talking about on what happens to consumers. And, you know, Frontier and Spirit, they certainly fly in a lot of the same places, but there also was a lot less route overlap um, as well. So it might have gone through. They're also both smaller compared to the others. So from a consumer point of view, 
uh, you know, it might've been, um, it might've, it might've played better, uh, but we'll never know. I mean, there's a lot of politics involved. Uh, you know, the people that are making a lot of money right now on this are the lobbying firms that have been hired to go to Congress and to go to the DOJ and to go to the white house and say, you got to let this go through. You got to let this go through. Or on the flip side, consumer groups that have their lobbying efforts are saying the same thing. You got to stop this. You got to stop this. So, right. so yeah. Yeah. I need to start my own lobbying group or start a consulting business for airline mergers or airline uh, contracts. <laughs> right. Right. I don't <laughs> know if you've time. ever played the, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean, interrupt. I don't know if you've ever played the, the lobbying game in DC. I got to participate one time going from Senator to congressperson's office and talking to staff about, well, it was actually a pilot shortage issue. I was talking about, this was maybe 10 years ago. But that that is a weird that's a weird industry that lobbying. I uh, I you know you pay a lot of money to people and they basically get you access to all these different senators and Congress people and you get to go in. You never really get to talk to any of them, but you talk to their staff, right? And they'll listen and they'll bring a notebook out and pretend they they care. I'm being really cynical, but they'll pretend they really care about your issue and well we'll bring this to the senator and make sure that she's aware of this when the vote comes. You know and you know the truth is is you don't know what's going to happen, but but it's a it's a weird industry. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely not easy. And I'm, I'm sure they're making a lot of money because they know what they're doing, know how to get it done. Yes. But uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Uh, do you think this is the beginning of more mergers or do you think this is a one-off? Well, you know, in theory, mergers are one of the fastest ways for an airline, if they're done correctly, or for companies in general, but in particular airlines, especially, air, you know, airlines are very asset heavy uh, companies. And so it's very difficult for them to grow organically, uh, you know, and just add airplanes and add routes, although they're definitely trying to do that. Uh, it's just more difficult. The fastest way to grow is to acquire. And so there's always going to be a market tension and there's always going to be some kind of um, a push for airlines to consolidate at some levels because it's good for their shareholders. It's good for their profitability. And most importantly, it's good for their growth. Um, however, when you start, I mean, for instance, just hypothetically, imagine if like a Delta and um, an American merged. I mean, set aside all of the all of the the issues that would come with that. Just think, just think about what the structure of that would look like. I mean, that something like that would greatly disadvantage uh, United, and so ultimately, in theory, it would greatly decrease the competition in some areas. So something like that would probably not happen. But where you might start seeing some consolidation, like you're seeing here, is maybe on some of the ULCCs. And also, um, maybe even, it's been talked about in the past, I don't know, it's it's like trying to make an apple and an orange uh, produce a seed that's in, you know some kind of new fruit. But it's been talked about before where perhaps a legacy looks to acquire, you know, an, an, LLC, an LCC of some sort and, you know, I'm not even sure how that would work, but but that's been bantered about. So you might see things like that, but I think these really, really super large scales, I don't think they're going to get much bigger than um, than what you're seeing with JetBlue Spirit. Yeah, you did say you were wrong in the last one, so you never know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't make any stock decisions on what man. I'm saying, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so next, next topic we got, we have, this is pretty crazy. Uh, the timing is wild to me, uh, especially with the pilot shortage, but... Uh, apparently Republic is, is is suing some pilots right now, um, <laughs> which 
I guess it has to be pretty bad for them to do it because like, like I just said, the timing is weird. I just don't understand why you would publicly want to bring any more drama or kind of a, a backlash for, for young pilots when you're going recruiting in colleges, when they're, they're talking like, well, yeah, but they'll, they'll sue you if you do something wrong. <laughs> you know, I just don't get it. Yeah. There's a, so, so the issue in this particular case is, you know, Republic has always been pretty progressive in their approach to um, hiring pilots and, uh, you know, recruiting pilots and getting as far down the supply stream as, as possible. So one of the things they came up with, yeah, I think it's maybe around 2017, 2018, somewhere in there, they came up with their own aviation academy. It's called the Lift Academy. I believe it's in Indianapolis. And, and the idea there is, is you could go and fly there and uh, you still have to pay <clears throat> for your training, but a lot of it's subsidized. And of course, the entire path is um, manicured. So you go and you work for Republic at the end for basically five years. So I don't understand the all the ins and outs of what happened here, but what we see reported in the press is that 12 of these uh, pilots that went through that program have decided to go fly elsewhere. And so what Republic is, is Republic suing them, not for the entire cost, but for the parts they said that they subsidized. So I think it ranged from like a $10,000 lawsuit to I think it was as much as a $55,000 lawsuit is what I read in the in the news reports. And, you know, what's interesting about that is, um, OK, we can talk about training contracts in general, uh, but um, this is a little bit different than your typical training contract. But to what you what you're talking about, this is this is a very aggressive thing that a republic is doing and it will be noted amongst uh, future people coming into the industry that is kind of heavy-handed on the other on the other side of that however you could probably see i mean the in the boardroom where this was decided uh at republic it probably went all the way up to bedford their ceo i'm just, i think he's still the ceo there he was the last time i checked but it went all the way up to their highest levels and my my guess is as they bantered about the good and the bad but they probably decided to be more aggressive, probably because they, they want to make sure that anyone else in that academy that thinks, well, I might go somewhere somewhere else, um, I, you know, they want to try to disincentivize that by saying, well, you're going to get a lawsuit if you do that. So they, it was probably right on the 50-yard line on what they should or shouldn't do. I do know that um, most companies that have similar training contracts, just in general, you often find this on like the, the freight Folks that can hire under a thousand hours, you know, some of this is a commercial instrument. They can maybe get their, um, uh, you know, VF 120 or 135 VFR or whatever. Uh, what they'll do is they will sometimes try to collect. But what, what I've what I've seen them do in the past is they just report it. They sell it off to a, a credit collection agency. They'll say, okay, this person owes us thirty five thousand dollars for their pilot training. You can have the debt if you give us ten thousand. And then where it hurts the pilot is it can end up on their on their credit report, right? That's where it can really be kind of damaging. Um, by the way, I do get this question quite a bit. I'm sure you do too, Justin. I, I get calls from people every now and then that say, hey, if I leave early, uh, am, I, am I still responsible for my training contract? Uh, the only person that could ever possibly answer that is an attorney. I'm not just saying that to shed the liability or responsibility of ourselves, but the but each one of these is so different and each state law that they're that they're drawn from can be very different. That you're just going to have to get a labor attorney in the state of jurisdiction for where your contract is to to take a look and say, no, this is not enforceable. And I, I have heard of that happening in some cases, but there are other states where uh, I've also known lawyers to tell people, 
no, this is enforceable and you probably will end up having to pay this if the company decides to sue you or send it off to collections. So my general my general advice, and it's really easy for me to say, having gone through the career, is you know to avoid training contracts as much as possible. There's nothing wrong with flight instructing. It's uh, you know, it's the path that almost everyone has to go on. Uh, I'm convinced it makes a better pilot out of a person. I'm convinced it, it helps them uh, work as a crew more effectively because nothing teaches you how to communicate when someone's trying to kill you at uh, you know on their second or third landing. And so you learn to communicate. And so um, uh, if you can, just go the flight instructor out. Avoid the avoid the training contracts, even though it sometimes seems like a a little bit of a shortcut or a way to avoid the hardcore flight instructing. Um, long-term, it generally is not the best decision. Yeah, I guess you just got to really have to understand what you're getting yourself into, right? Like when you sign a contract like that, you hear all the good, uh, but there's always the, there's always going to be something that pops up that maybe won't make it as good as you thought it was going to be. So you really have to understand that when you sign that contract, you are essentially required uh, to do all that, to meet what you are promising to them, which is your employment for a certain amount of time, either at Republic or wherever you were supposed to go. So you really need to be careful with that uh, and really know what you're getting yourself into. If this is the perfect contract for your, this is the perfect thing for you to sign at the time in your life with your family, then by all means go for it. But like you said too, there's other ways to do it. So if you have any kind of hesitancy, wow, I can't talk, any kind of hesitancy, then you should go seek other means of, of getting it done. That's right. That's that's just great advice. Um, and and uh, you know what you said is kind of important. I mean, if somebody signs on the dotted, no matter how people feel about training contracts, if somebody signs on the dotted line and says, "I will work for you for 24 months if you pay for my flight training," um, whether he, philosophically, ethically, no matter how one feels about it, you know, the, if the pilot signs that, they did promise that they were going to fly for that certain amount of time. And uh, so it's something that has to be weighed, you know, to, to what, you, what you said. Just in full disclosure, I, I am I have been helping a group of pilots. I'm not going to name the the carrier, but it's a it's a 135 operation that has their folks sign these things. And um, you know, the one time I think you know it's it's an ethical discussion. But if you get to some of these airlines, um, sometimes it's not quite as good as you you think it might have been. You know, wow, they'll hire you at 300 hours to go fly you know, in a Baron or whatever, which is great. I mean, that's a great opportunity, no doubt. And, you know, you, you, but then you have to sign this two year or three year contract. And then all of a sudden, maybe by the third week of flying, you don't want to take a plane because it's, you know, there's a little too much oil on the cowling. And all of a sudden you start feeling the pressure of the company. And all of a sudden it becomes something like this, by the way, in your contract, it says, if we fire you, uh, you have to repay this. So you can really get yourself into a really bad pickle really, really quick and so that's why I say to 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 avoid that. And I know there's a lot of operators out there that would never do that or take advantage of that. But there certainly are some that I have personal knowledge of that, uh, in my opinion, they're doing that a little bit. It's what we used to call pilot pushing, um, you know, where you use something against them uh, to to uh, make them do something that maybe they wouldn't want to do. You'd like to think this stuff never happens, but I do still think it's going on in the United States at some of the lower carriers, lower. I, I'm sorry, some of the entry level uh, job opportunities. And, um, you know, uh, again, it looks like a shortcut. looks like the grass might be greener. It looks like, you know, you got a dream job lined up and then you get there and you're like, oh crap, how do I get through this? You know? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it goes on 
a lot of places that you wouldn't expect to probably even higher up the food chain. It, it may not be as obvious as that, but it's even how they structure sentences, how they word things and how they word, uh, whether it's pushback or just a phone call or an email and the way that they phrase things can come across as not necessarily intimidation, but it definitely paints it in a kind of a company forward and a company positive way where it makes you feeling bad for doing something that you might do because you think it's unsafe and really just, just makes you in the moment you might second guess something. So, and you might go for the, the option where you go fly the airplane, even though you feel like there might be an issue. Right. And sometimes it's so much of a gray area, you're not sure, right? Especially when you're new in the industry. You know, I don't want to be a hypocrite here. I flew I flew in situations like that for 135 um, uh, cargo carriers. And I, I can tell you that there were things that, uh, in retrospect, I wish I would have made a different decision and not flowing, you know? And so I, I don't want to be a hypocrite and say, oh, follow my path and never make a never make a decision that you, you, you shouldn't. I mean, we've, we've all done that. And so it doesn't, you're absolutely right. I think it may go to different places and sometimes it's just how your DO or your chief pilot just phrases things, right? You're, you're absolutely right. It just, um, you know, it's just, it's just amazing how, uh, entire interpretations can, can change on inflection or tone. You know, yeah. It comes back to tone. Like not. you just talked about a little bit ago. Right. Um, let's see. All right. Well, that satisfies that. I think it's just, it's just interesting, interesting timing. That, that's the only thing. Uh, it sounds like someone got their feelings hurt, uh, up in Republic and they want to make an example out of something, but maybe they shouldn't do it right now <laughs> or maybe yeah, that's right. they should figure something else out. But Hey, I mean, they are smarter than me. They know what they're doing. So obviously they're still getting applicants, but, um, it's just interesting. It is interesting. I did notice of the 12 people they're suing, one is already settled according to, you know, a confidential settlement, which tells me, my guess is this isn't even about the money. Uh, it's, it's about them just making a point yep. that they're, 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 you know, getting the notches, you know, on their belt saying, if you leave, you're, you're going to have to pay this. You know, my guess is it was probably settled for a lot less than what the pilot owed, but nonetheless, uh, I don't know that because it's confidential, but, but so it is interesting how it's, it's, there's a big element of PR, a big element of marketing to future pilots. And also a big element of, you know, just being good financial stewards of your company. So I can see there's just a lot of variables these management folks are, are managing. Definitely. Uh, and the last thing we're going to talk about, and we don't, I feel like this is going to need more of its own episode, so we'll touch on it today. Uh, but what is going on right now? There have been so many near misses, uh, not just in different countries, in what is supposed to be the best airspace, the best aviation the best flying in the world uh with the best pilots best atc and, and we've been seeing time after time after time it's not a one-off there have been many issues that have happened and i'm sure there's some that are undocumented at smaller carriers maybe smaller uh freight uh like we're talking about four or smaller companies that don't have focal in all their airplanes uh the ones where they don't have to report it but it's insane. Uh, just wrapping your mind around the latest one, the Learjet, where I think they the JetBlue plane went around and they got within 500 feet of each other. Like that should never happen. Yeah, there's there's been you're you're exactly right. There's been some uh, incidences that uh, could have been catastrophic, and of course, all of us, uh, you know, we think back to our training on on aviation safety. And we immediately think of, you know, the, the pyramid, right? You know, the, you know, for every near miss that or for every major accident that happens, there probably were 
a couple dozen uh, near misses that uh, occurred just prior to that, that if we would have paid attention to, we could have avoided the accident, right? We've all heard that iceberg theory. And so the question is, is that is that what's going on in the industry right now? Are things just tight and, you know, we're, we're getting really close to having an accident uh, like we used to have regularly? Well, I say regularly, but you'd have one or two or three a year, you know, in the 80s and early 90s. And um, so is that what's going on? So there's a couple theories out there. I'll go from uh, scariest theory to not so scary theory. Uh, one of the scariest theories is, is, you know, we do have a lot of people that are retiring from this industry. And with that goes a lot of knowledge. And there, there have been talks now for the last three or four years is, you know, we're starting to see captains that maybe are, you know, they're flying wide bodies after a couple of years, wide body captains in their 20s. Um, you know, we're starting to see, uh, you know, people upgrade inside of a year on probation at a legacy. So, so the question becomes is, are we, is, is the level of knowledge that we've had uh, as an industry for the last couple decades, or at least the last decade for sure, is that eroding? And then the theory is, is that, is that what's starting to cause some of these issues? So that's the scariest theory that, that it, I guess the direct answer would be, yeah, we, we probably are operating with with higher risk and lower safety margins. I mean, that's one of the theories, right? And of course, that could lead to an eventual uh, catastrophe, which we all hope doesn't happen, but but that's the theory. Now, the other, the other theory could be something not quite as nefarious or scary, and it could just be um, that these particular instances that have been recorded, because I think there's been three or four now where you're like scratching your head saying, whew, man, that was pretty bad. Um, you know, how often do these near misses happen on a daily basis with U.S. carriers in the U.S. airspace? And um, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know when the news media picks up on one of them, whether it is the one that uh, has happened, uh, you know, um, you know, that was, you know, that was more serious than the other. If they just happen to run with it, then other newspapers and, and uh, online blogs and they pick up with it and go. And so they sensationalize it a little bit. I mean, the famous case there. I, do you, I don't know if you recall the Northwest Airlines Airbus that that missed Minneapolis and you know flew flew way past that. I don't know if you remember that particular incident. Um, but on that same day, there was a carrier that landed on a taxiway in uh, Atlanta that the news completely missed, and um, it was a it was a wide body at a, a legacy carrier in Atlanta. You can probably figure out who that was, and um, so the news media didn't even broadcast that to anybody. And it's like, well, why, why did they pick the overflight, which they both were bad, right? They both involved, involved gross situational awareness errors. There's no doubt, but why did they pick one and not the other? I don't know. And so what I don't know, you know, the one place that would know the answer to this, but it's completely confidential and rightly so there's a fusion center at um, MITRE Asias. I don't know if you've heard of Asias, but it's a, it's a, it's a cooperative between the FAA and the airlines and the labor unions, and they all work together and they fuse all of their safety data. So ASAPs, uh, FOLQA data, uh, LOSA data, uh, any kind of surveys, it all goes into uh, you know pretty secure, sophisticated system in DC there at MITRE. And they constantly look for systemic, system-wide threats. And they do monitor for things like this. So if all of a sudden they're detecting an uptick above the baseline and things like this, and that's when I would get concerned. The problem is, is we don't know, right? Because if all of a sudden Asias starts getting concerned, they're not going to broadcast that to the New York Times because that would cause a panic. But they will address it and they will talk to their member airlines and say, 
hey, we're starting to see problems like this. We're starting to see problems like that. And the whole concept is, is they prevent this organizational accident from happening down the line. I, the optimist in me, Justin, would like to think it's a little more the news media sensationalizing these things. Uh, the realist in me says it might be in between that and, you know, just a little bit of a, a, um, a lack of um, airmanship that uh, as we start seeing, you know, more and more new people come into the industry. I'd like to add a third theory. I think that it has something to do with working more than ever and, and fatigue rates. Oh, that's good too. So, yeah, I mean, everyone's working, doing more with less, right? Whether it's ATC or airlines or pilots, uh, every company's trying to be as par- profitable as possible. Uh, and I think maybe we're starting to see a little bit of a backlash or a little bit of uh, the backside or the bad side uh, of that way in the aviation world where you can only push someone so far, you know, and, and yeah, you might feel fatigued, but it's like, yeah, last time everything worked out fine because what, 99% of times it's going to work out just fine, but it's that 1% where just the bad, like the, the stupid things happen and you take off and out of Hawaii and there's this crazy thunderstorm and you hit this microburst and then you stall and then like just, and you're not as up with it. You're not as into it because you're tired uh, and you make the wrong decision at that time. Uh, when really you were fatigued and pushed too hard and you could have just fatigued. Uh, I'm not saying that's what happened. That's just me kind of generalizing and, and thinking about myself, what I think could have happened in that situation with that one, one actual aircraft, but it's just, I feel like we're just getting pushed a little bit too much. Everyone's flying a lot. Everyone's doing as much as they can. And pilots want to fly, right? Pilots want to go up and do the job. There's certain, there's a certain kind of like, I want to accomplish the mission. Now there's always going to be a couple pilots that maybe are not that way. I mean, that's just human nature, but most pilots are, are team players. They want to do it. They don't want to get in trouble. They want to make sure that those, those families get home. Uh, and so maybe they do push themselves sometimes, but I do think that maybe fatigue in the system is getting pressed a little bit too much right now. Well, I think that's a very strong possibility as well. And someone like yourself who is a regular participant in the national airspace system, I think we'd have to pay attention to because if you're feeling it, my guess is other other people are feeling it as well. And you're right. I mean, one of the big buzzwords over the last decade has been optimization, right? And the idea is, is, you know, how many more passengers can I fit on an airplane? How many more airplanes can I fit into an acceptance rate on an, at, at an airport? You know, how, you know, how, you know, I can, you know, you know, look at all the different things we do now with RVSM and, you know, parallel approaches and things that we never would have considered. Now, obviously the technology allows us to do things like this, but these are things that, uh, you know, necessarily decrease a lot of the, uh, uh, boundaries that we had in the eighties and nineties and so forth. So, so you very well may be right. And again, we, this should be looked at. And my guess is it is being looked at, at the national level. I, I should probably reach out to some of my folks that, that work, um, in those areas that monitor systemic issues and, and see, you know, another, you know, I was talking about the different pieces of data that get sent in, uh, for analysis. We, you know, all know about ASAPs and FOQAs, but there's also these uh, FRMSs, these fatigue risk mitigation systems, which um, are plans that are supposed to be based on scientific study that, um, you know, basically uh, if you fly through six time zones in one flight, you know, what's the effect and how long should you be acclimated before you can take your next flight in the, that local time zone? And the only way to really know that is to scientifically measure it. Right now they're doing it through active watches and proving runs and things like that. But there's probably better ways to do that. And uh, maybe the um, the FAA and other regulators around the world and, and quite frankly, 
the unions and the airlines, they probably do need to take a deeper dive into that. So I think your third theory is quite possible. Yeah. And I want to throw the disclaimer out. I'm not talking about personal experience with my company. We have a, a very, very generous fatigue policy. No questions asked. You ever feel tired of fatigue and you're off for 14 hours, whatever you need to, to regroup. So uh, this is this is not me saying that's how I have felt and I feel pushed. I feel stressed and everyone in my company does that. That's not it. I'm just saying from the outside looking in, looking at the whole industry as a whole uh, and the optimization that you were talking about, maybe it's just a, a little bit too much right now. And maybe we need to reevaluate and, and, and dig deeper and think. But will that happen? I don't know because the accident hasn't happened yet. So as an industry, we react after it happens. Uh, it's just historically how it is. And that's just like I said, unfortunately, it's just the way it is. So uh, until that does happen, there probably won't be a significant change in uh, in anything we're talking about, which is very unfortunate. That is unfortunate. And I, I, I'm sorry if I uh, led everyone to believe that you were talking about your company. I, I know you talked to so many pilots, way more pilots than I ever talked to on a daily basis. So I knew you were talking about the industry in general. But but I, I yeah, you're, you're right. Unfortunately, we are very reactionary uh, at times. And that has not bode well for us in the past. And uh, I certainly don't think it'll bode well for us in the future. So so hopefully it's the sensationalistic uh, nature of some of these stories. Uh, but some of the details of these, they do make your mouth drop, don't they? They make you wonder, wow, that that was a lot closer than people even realize. So so yeah, we'll, we'll uh, have to keep monitoring it and um, hope for the best. Well, what's crazy too is when, when pilots read these things, their first thought is, oh my gosh, how on earth did that pilot ever get themselves in this situation? But every single pilot could have been in that situation. You know, like there is that pilot is not worse than you. Uh, they didn't do anything that you might not have done. Uh, maybe you would have gotten out of that one situation, but there's going to be a time and day where you get yourself in a situation where 99% of pilots want to get themselves in. You know, it's uh, you're not. Uh, immune to the same mistakes they made or the uh, the factors that attributed to that that um, not incident but that um, that flight so uh, it can happen to anyone and uh, it is just unfortunate like we're talking about yeah that's that's really a great lesson for everyone to take to heart I remember as a kid when I started you know talking about flying with my father and I'd read it about an accident and I'd say to my father what were they thinking I would never do that he looked at me and this is a funny, one of my favorite statements. It doesn't make sense when you think about it, but he says, never say never because um, you just don't know what went into it. Just like you're saying, you just don't know what led up to that. And it's really easy for us when we're you know sitting there reading an accident report or, or watching a YouTube reanimation of an accident flight to sit there and say, uh, oh yeah, I would have never done that. But you're absolutely right. You just don't know those, those particular pilots that have unfortunately been part of these accidents, they didn't wake up in the morning and, and say that I'm going to go and do something really stupid or make a really bad decision. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. None of us are immune from that and we should never say never. Exactly. And we'll, we'll leave it at that. So Dr. Jim Higgins, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, these are a lot of fun. I'll see you in two weeks, unless there's another sickness sounds that goes through my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're feeling better. And yeah. it sounds good, Justin. Always happy to uh, be here. Yeah. We'll do it again. Have a good one. And that's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the state of the industry. As I said before, if you like these, please let me know. Uh, leave me a review and say state of the industry podcasts are amazing. You can leave that in a review on iTunes. You can also leave a review on Spotify as well, or just send me an email. So whichever one you want to do. But Aviation, hope you're having a great day. And as always, happy fun.